Unsexy Business with Jamie Waller. Hi, this is Jamie Waller and welcome to my new series of podcasts called Unsexy Business. The podcast ties in with the release of my new book of the same name, details on that later. In this series, I'll be talking to a range of business owners and entrepreneurs. This isn't about Silicon Valley style corporations or the latest tech initiative. This is about traditional business models, thoughts and plans that could easily have begun in a pub or your own garden shed. Simple ideas that have become multi-million pound companies. It's these stories that interest me. From plumbers to parking, penny suites to second-hand cars, I'll be meeting the people behind some of Britain's most successful businesses. Welcome to Unsexy Business. My guest this week is Nick Broom. Nick began his company PVL as a youngster in 1999. They are specialists in the production of high-visibility livery and corporate branding for commercial fleet vehicles and the emergency services. I began by asking Nick how it all started and what happened when he first left school. The only thing I can trace it back to when I left school, all my mates bought motorbikes and I bought all their bikes. And I redid up all their bikes, sold their bikes and bought myself a super deluxe racing bike and went off racing instead. And I was the only one who had any money in my pocket and they were all spending all theirs. So there was, a, there was a drive for something to make something from nothing. And I think I've also always been driven by a bit of a fear of failure too. There's this nagging insecurity that's driven me forwards. Um, that's what's got me up every morning. So I worked for someone else as a programmer, technical sales, technical support, uh, or technical support, then technical sales. Was selling, ended up, ironically, selling CAD and design systems to people. And every people I went to see thought, I can do better than that. Is that really what you're turning out from the equipment we're selling you? Um, and this kind of became a bit of a bugbear. And over the years, the years I worked, which was I think eight or nine in total, uh, for somebody else, I was getting frustrated that my managers were earning loads of money. My technical support people weren't backing me up. I was selling it and installing it. And the people I was selling it to, I didn't. I, I felt I could do better than them. And after a, a couple of attempts to leave, my, I got tempted back a few times. Um, I, I just cut all my ties and went right. I'm, I'm going to set up a creative agency and actually fulfill this desire I've always had to do something creative my boss did the best thing he possibly could which was just say great Nick that's lovely but no one ever makes any money in the creative sector fine that's the incentive I needed to go and try and prove him wrong (laughs) the thing I think I got right from day one was I recruited a designer what I felt I knew by that point was how to sell how to engage with clients how to build relationships and how to how to get that requirement off to the the technical or creative person over here for them to deliver it. So I, I started off by recruiting people who were better than me. When I first started, I did have two partners. That was there was a, there was a spark that enabled me to go. There were two other people who encouraged me. One was an architect, and one was a printer. And we had this idea that we would have me selling, one designing, and one doing the print production. Very quickly became apparent that one of them wasn't going to work out, and that lasted less than a year. And after a couple of years, it turned out that the other one really only wanted to do a certain type of business. But it, it enabled me to work out what I might want to do with it and then get all the shareholding my back myself and start from there. By that point, we already had one designer because we were generating enough work. I sketched a business plan about a month before I started the business in a, um, in a lay-by. I can remember being sat there in my company car, sketching down, well, that client will come with me, that client will come with me, that client will come with me. And, oh, that's enough to pay those bills and that bills and a little bit, right, OK, so we could start this. So I parallel ran the creative agency with some technical support from clients that I knew weren't happy where I was. Um, but that also, that, that slowed down the intent of going off into that business, but it paid the bills. Preview grew because we went out to find people who had repeat work and quite technical work. So we picked up uh, a few 
reasonable sized holiday companies who did a holiday travel brochure every year and that would be a big chunky piece of work that would keep us busy for several months we'd then print manage it for them as well so we'd take the technical thing away from them and I had this knack of like, once we got a client we would go in and say well, what else could we do for them what about your business cards what about we did the first one of the first websites in the country I think for Royal Academy of Dance way way back in 97 98 uh, we still have that client today because of the relationships that were built. So it was all about building relationships, managing the, the um, expectations with clients, delivering great service, and, and moving from there. But it was, it was a, com- it's a hard business because you're only as good as the last creative thing you did. We were much more functional. I always argued we were a business services company, which creative people do not want to hear. But at the end of the day, that's what we were delivering. Um, matter of fact about it. And, th- and that was it. Preview was, was trundling along quite nicely, the good old trusted method build do something good for one person get them to tell five other people and then go and chase those five other people down and see which ones will, will fit for your business i think we probably over those years we were definitely a me too company it wasn't it wasn't it was satisfying my creative design but it wasn't satisfying my desire to be different it was we would, it was just paying the bills pretty much um, it, we had quite a nice time doing it but it was all about putting the money back in to invest in the next thing, managing quite complicated people in creative sector who have totally different desires to a business and trying to align those two things. It's an artisan skill that's in a, in a business sector, and I think I admire the companies that can really grow large creative teams, although I would argue that a lot of the really successful ones have actually got it down into nice modules rather than just succeeded on creativity. But the off the back of it, the networking, the relationships are the bit that held it all together, that's how PVL came about. I wanted something different. I'm an opportunist. I was looking at what else there was about. and I had tried a couple of other things. We tried a, a supplies and stationery company along the way, invested in a guy to go off and sell that. But that's when you realise you've got to be really careful about the people you invest in and they're not maybe what they, they are on the tin. Um, and it got a bit distracted. I, I tried a few options. The, the PVL thing came up because somebody that I knew was working for somebody else and very unhappy with everywhere they went, they were getting bad feedback about the company and the product and services, and uh, came to me and said, Nick, can't, can't we do this? So he came in, and we basically, I went out to sell to the clients that he pointed me in the direction of, or once we'd start to work out which police forces it was, and ambulance trusts and so forth, I'd go off and see them, bring back the opportunities. He and I would make the kits up. I was doing preview in the day and PVL in the evenings as that, at that point. And we literally started with a, with a cutting board and a scalpel and a roll of material. But therein lies the first biggest mistake. I'd started another business with very little money. And in fact, the other business was doing okay. It wasn't at that size at that point. It was doing okay, but it wasn't really earning me big money. So there wasn't much money to invest in this. I'm already taking on the overhead of the person. And we did it very small scale, literally making cut kits by hand to start with. Um, there's some complications to the equipment that we needed and I didn't have the space for it at the time either so it was very much run as a cottage industry for the first year or so the excitement for me was to be first or second into market there was there was a bit of noise from some other organizations who were trying to get into it as well so we there was other organizations trying to set up but there's still only five companies in the country that do it so it was the excitement of being able to get into something brand new it was also it was tangible output what, I, what frustrated me about the creative sector is so much of it's either online or just, just printed. And it's, someone can not like something because they don't like green. Not whether green's the right colour or not. not. They don't want your recommendation, they just don't like green. And they, there's no logic to that. You send a kit out, it either fits or it doesn't fit. 
that's great. That's a nice, easy to satisfy requirement. It's either on time or it isn't on time. You, you can literally weigh our success by the number of parcels that go out the door. It, that really appealed. Something physical just, just made business a bit more real. You're listening to Unsexy Business, and my guest this week is Nick Broom, the founder and CEO of PVL. I took a decision to go after a tender based around my overhead rather than how I would normally price it. So it was a, it was a slightly bold choice. My, my wife, who's a management accountant, was saying to me that you, you've got all these overheads, why don't you price it this way? I thought, oh, I thought doing that, okay. So took the fact that I've already got all this overhead, all these people, all this stuff, why don't we just go and get that contract to fill that resource? Let's not, not worry too much about what the margins were. As it turned out, the margins weren't too bad. But we won Police Scotland. Now that enabled me to do several things. I had overhead that wasn't, max, wasn't being utilised to, to its full. Therefore, if I went after this contract, it would fill up my production capability without me necessarily needing to bring much more cost on. I certainly had the equipment, I had the space, I had some people. I could add some more production people if I needed, but what I didn't have was the orders to fill all the rest of that. Um, and the tender would give me three years of, of growth potential off of that starting point. Traditionally, we were going out and making a sale and then going out and making a sale and then going out and making a sale. This enabled us to do one big effort that would make lots of sales for the next three years. But I caught my competitors by surprise. Um, now, going back to the bit about knowing people, I'd gone out of my way to try and meet as many of my competitors as possible and make sure they all knew who we were and what we were doing. Um, and one guy in particular was working for a, a big competitor, part of an enormous group, but a little little division of it. And when we won Scotland, I won most of his customers. So then I went and had conversations maybe Willie'd like to come and work with us and he was horrified at first but, but he'd, it had clearly been in his mind and I, and I timed it right I could see that he was getting frustrated where he was plus I just won a big chunk of his customer base and actually it's, it's a strange tender actually you, you win the tender but you've still then got to go and make sure they specify you because there is a chance they could try and do it through one of the other people who's on that tender submission even though we were top I think it was awarded to a choice of people we went out he and I so employed him, we went out on the road together and won every single contact in the Scottish Police Force in the space of a week. Um, and you could see we're going to places, some of our competitive stuff was on the tables and we were going in replacing it with ours. But he had those relationships. I had the tender, he had the relationships, we managed to find a way. Um, and that was the point where I took a step back from all the sales. So pretty much haven't touched sales since then. I might do relationships and strategic stuff with people, but he's my sales force. I am too I know I'm too nice. I'm probably too soft on things. Um, but, but I always hold that thing true about just keeping those relationships. You just never know when you're going to need that relationship. You know, I'm delighted that when I texted you, A, you remembered who I was, B, that you remembered what I did, and, and C, we're here now. I mean, crikey. That, that sat in the back of a taxi scrabbling a message quickly to someone. If you create an impression, I mean, this is why I wear an orange tie for everyone's sake. You know, I am a nice guy. Um, I try to really... I take it... As a, as a failure if I've lost a relationship where um, for the wrong reasons I probably work overly hard to try and maintain those contacts you just never know when you're going to need them that's what I've always thought and, and you can't change your character if you're a nice person you can't be a git can you I did go through a phase actually in life years and years ago where I decided I was going to just be this different character um, and it was for about it was for over a weekend and I'd literally changed like it and became this different character, more in line with one of my, a particular friend of my time. And what I noticed was I, I, I slipped into it and I was able to do this thing where 
I never considered other people's views. Like, I'm going to do this. It was a very selfish sort of approach to it. What I, what I noticed and what, what hung with me for a long time since was, was how horrified some of my really good friends were about this character that had just come out from nowhere. <laughs> but it was an experiment just to see. And it, it's, I have this natural insecurity that I don't quite know what, what it's from. I've got feelings about where it's come about. But that is what makes me want to be liked, I suppose. Hopefully not too sycophantically, but you know, I want to leave an impression that I've, that I've done something right. I would, I, it would keep me awake all night if I've said something that I've realised, I've read the body language and I've offended somebody. I'd want to go and try and put that right. Um, so along the way, you, I meet intelligent people or people who've got an expertise in a particular sector. And I think, this sounds, sounds a bit harsh, maybe it's Halloween night, I would suck that information out of them. And then after a period of time, I think, yeah, I'm not really learning anything more from you. And I kind of drop them. Not in a nasty way. Actually, I don't need to see you every week like we used to. Let's move to the next person. And it, it's something I don't know. It wasn't deliberate. I just realised that this is what I've been doing. And I could probably write a list of those people who've been fantastic mentors in particular areas of, of my life without me even realising that they were a mentor and without them realising they were mentoring me. But we found, I found a way of getting what I needed to, to learn that particular area. And, and the tendering part, actually... I didn't bring external expertise in, but I did build really good relationships with the local um, Chamber of Commerce people and got them to challenge me and got them to give me some, some steer on, boy, is this any good? Um, I, I remember literally sacking somebody because they kept telling me that everything was fine. I said, it's not fine. That, that's of no use to me. I know it can be better, but you're not telling me what, so I need somebody different. Um, so I would always be looking for someone to challenge and push me further. I'll find a competitive streak in something, everything. I'm not, I'm not the most, um, whatever, I, I, I won't win everything, but I will compete at anything if I can find a way. So my nice bit isn't that nice. We started the police side and it was fairly obvious that the whole emergency service sector were looking for the same thing. They are slightly different in the way they operate, but effectively it's fleet managers in workshops and they all have a requirement or it's converters, bodybuilders, people who make the ambulances. So one of our biggest clients right now for all of the UK ambulances is a German company because they're the ones building them, um, or an Irish company. So um, that, that was quite a quick progression. Where, again, I maybe didn't realise the opportunity early on enough was uh, there's X number of pieces and Y amount of complication in a police vehicle. An ambulance is much larger square meterage, and we should have gone after those earlier. Um, more income yeah yeah and then from there obviously there's the highways sector um, but that market has now got a bit com- uh, a bit commoditized and there's quite a few players cutting that that kind of stuff the, the, the price is edged down because of more people around doing it but it's it's pretty much settled where it is now um, the only problem we've got is one maverick competitor who I don't think need to make any money and they don't seem to have any knowledge about pricing structure and that's really hard to compete with so what we have to do is make them less credible. They don't know what they're doing. They've won a couple of jobs office in the last few years and then messed up. So then we get the customer back. So sometimes you've just got to let it run its course. I, I see that as my role. I think that the challenge I have, and I've had for several years, and this is where I've been really struggling, is I've pushed myself to here. And, and whilst my, my, my FD is, is, you know, is up with me in terms of awareness and skills, the next one down's back here. And I've yeah. really struggled with how I fill this gap. I've spent years trying to bring them all up to realise that actually a lot of them just can't make it. Which one of these plates do you spin first? This, this is the problem. I, I, I'm at this crossroads. I'm not even a crossroads. I'm at a multifaceted junction right now where 
I'm in danger of going down the wrong road or trying to go down two roads at the same time. And then remembering I need to be in Algeria on Monday and Saudi the week after. And There's just too much on my plate. It is challenging. And these are the things that I didn't know at the beginning. And if I'd done the university studies and other stuff, I probably would have had a much better plan of attack. I'm here because I live nearby. It was as simple as that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was able to buy a premises rather than, than rent it. I am a master of my own destiny for what, what we've got. I get an income from it separately to the business and I can choose, if the business was struggling at a particular point, I can choose whether we could reduce that or not. I've got, I've got four or five main competitors and my view is that most of them couldn't follow me anyway. So the opportunity came up four or five years ago, uh, four, four years ago, we were doing some, uh, asked to do some ambulance graphics for a client in Ireland who were exporting some vehicles to Abu Dhabi. That was all I knew. In the Middle East, there's a demand for better quality ambulances and they can't get them from anywhere other than Europe. Europe has got a very high standard regulation for ambulance build quality. It's all to do with how they perform in a crash. And there's lots of instances in the Middle East of accidents, uh, ambulances crashing and the driver and the patient being killed in the accident because the ambulance wasn't fit for purpose. So they wanted to raise standards. And this is something I found out latterly, actually. But they were buying these ambulances from an Irish company. Six off vehicles to start with, but the Sheikh was involved because it's his project of the ambulance company. They effectively set up an NHS out in, in Abu Dhabi. And he wanted to choose these graphics. So we did all six ambulances differently because he couldn't choose off a piece of paper. He wanted to see them, which I thought was quite hilarious and therefore quite <laughs> worth going out to see what was going on with this. So if this is the kind of way they want to spend their money. And then we did four of them again because he wanted something changed. And then we did five of them, all six in the new style. So... Um, we had three goes on the same log. Uh, brilliant, absolutely fantastic for us. And I followed them out there because this particular client is quite hard work to work with. And I've always tried to get to the end client because if I can get specified as the end client, we're not a sticker company that come along and put stickers on. We're PVL. You have a XYZ light bar, you have an XYZ siren system and a, a comm system. Why don't we have a brand that you're sticking on rather than some stickers? So that was my intention. So went out to Abu Dhabi, followed these ambulances, um, worked on that first part of the project they then ordered 100 ambulances from the Irish company and we ran around to do the 100 ambulances in the UK and they shipped them out to the UAE so we were doing them all here we followed them out to, uh, to Abu Dhabi because there was, they wanted to balance up with the rest of their fleet they had a few other vehicles they wanted to get them all consistent at that point I built the relationship with the end client and got us specified to, to avoid this thing of being beaten up by my converter customer um, they've since bought another 120 vehicles, but it said specifically, we want PVL. So whoever now builds the ambulances, it says PVL, PVL, all the way through. Um, and then from there, we maintain that fleet. But what I saw in this was, if there's this they're doing, and they had massive growth plans, I thought they would get a lot bigger. There, there's been reasons why they haven't, and they're all to do with politics and different different shakes falling out with each other. It'll, it'll come in future. Um, but there was an interest in the Middle East for road safety. They, they've got a huge issue with casualties on the road, and none of their vehicles have any kind of markings like we have in the UK. So I thought, well, why don't we go and have a look further at this and see whether whether there is an, an appetite and see if I can prove that I'm wrong. See if that actually my idea that they might want to stick reflective stuff on vehicles is actually the wrong idea, and I couldn't prove it. Every time I went, I got more interest and more interest. But what I did realise was we've been selling a product which is stickers on cars for years and never really thought about the technical aspect of it. And to this day, we've not done a single Battenberg vehicle out in the Middle East because 
they don't understand that. And, and again, Arabic mentality, they didn't want the same as the UK. They want something different. So what else can I have? So we've, I've worked with them to, with the different organisations to see how we, can, how we can provide something that helps make their vehicles more visible at night, that helps save lives. The, the strange irony, a little bit down that line, I turned around to my wife and said, look, I've done 12 trips this year. Do you fancy going and giving it a go in the Middle East and we'll go and live out there for a while and I really make an impact and try and get this thing to work? And it was a two-minute conversation. Yeah, why not? Um, we then tried to make sure that this place, the mothership, was actually intact. Um, made a big mistake and hired somebody that just did not work out. And that, that actually set us back for the rest of that period because we've ended up having to come backwards and forwards to try and manage the company. But that aside, we arrived in the Middle East. Two years, two years just about, actually. Um, just, just returned a couple of months ago um, because we had to make another decision and the decision was right now isn't the time to stay out there so having gone to Abu Dhabi I've, I've built a network out in the Middle East uh, in, in Abu Dhabi particularly but across the Middle East um, and we're getting into lots of different opportunities there's things that have gradually sort of progressed further we've just done a, a, to, a top secret pro- project for a very uh, high level government agency in that region but what I also did I picked up some business in a related area with Qatar. Um, in fact, Qatar is probably my biggest sector right now. We've done uh, 250 ambulances in the last year in Qatar, but Qatar have fallen out with Abu Dhabi, so I can't get to Qatar from Abu Dhabi anymore. Uh, we also picked up a connection in Kuwait, so my network was basically starting to work for me. Um, and we've, we're on the, on the process of a, a big tender and presentation for Saudi. They want to mark their entire fleet, actually quite a lot like UK, different colourings. So there's, there's been this growing interest, and every month you think, well, we'll do that one, but that one will drop off. What about this one? That one? At this point, maybe that one will drop off. But actually, right now, the opportunities are all over the place and all progressing towards, actually, they're looking more likely. This is incredible. And Algeria has come out of the woodwork in the last six months. I've been to Algeria four times. I'm off there next week to a symposium. It looks like we've, we've hit the right vein there as well. In fact, they're further behind than Abu Dhabi and Dubai are because they don't have anything on their vehicles and half the vehicles don't even have lights, but they do have another road safety issue. So we're we're meeting something. That's why I changed our whole strapline at that point to helping people save lives on the roads because actually that was combined with losing an award. We lost an award to someone who sold syringes into into Africa and was saving lives everywhere. And the basic differentiation between what we'd achieved and what they'd achieved was he saved lives. I looked at what we did again and thought, actually, why don't... We, we do that too. Why aren't we making more of this? Um, so we repositioned ourselves slightly. Don't forget, there are 11 business leaders in this series, all with different stories about how they took a very simple idea and transformed it into a multi-million pound success. Sometimes traditional thinking really does pay. All of the interviews featured in Unsexy Business are also featured in my new book of the same name. There you can read the more in-depth stories behind these entrepreneurs and their impressive journeys to success. There's also one or two anecdotes that we couldn't possibly put into the podcast, along with hundreds of tips on how you can start and build a successful business too. If you get over to Amazon, you can buy a hard copy or digital version of Unsexy Business now. It is also for sale in most major bookshops, including Waterstones and WH Smith. And remember, if you enjoyed this podcast, then please subscribe on your podcast app. This means that you'll get each new episode automatically. Do join me next time, and until then, goodbye.